This is the full presentation of the Black Swan Dawn of the Super Soldier I slash ITSEC conference. <laughs> Wait a minute, I heard one. That's all we got? The energy? It's the first day of ITSEC. Come on, good afternoon. Ah, great. So that we want a good start to this because we expect to have some good dynamic conversation today. We are going to have a couple of slides and, and a little bit of presentations, but really, uh, I'm going to surprise our panelists with a set of questions. Um, yes, that's right, you heard surprise a little bit because I wanted their actual gut reactions to um, how you know the, these, this topic will play out in the future. Or is it here, right, <coughs> myth? or reality, we don't know yet. So, uh, and we're gonna start out initially with a couple of introductions, a couple of slides, go into questions, and we want you folks also, who are the experts too, to provide questions and comments and conversation with us, right? So we want this to be really dynamic and to uh, have great involvement and interaction. Okay, so this topic, is the dawn of the super soldier. Now, as much as I would love to take credit for this, I cannot. I have to thank Mariam Chandri for leading the efforts with a, a group to come up with this topic and organizing this wonderful panel that we have today, again, of experts too, throughout training, physiological, uh, biological types of processes, uh, various uh, equipment, so exoskeletons, think those kinds of things, as well as selection. Okay, so we have a range of panelists here to cover the kind of breadth that might involve a super soldier. Now, when we hear super soldier, what do we usually think? Think Marvel, right? Captain America, um, you know, a variety of things. Iron Man, okay? So it could be any of these types of sci-fi ideas. But are they sci-fi? Maybe, or are we there? How close are we there? Right? Or are they completely autonomous? Are they drones? Uh, it could be independent. Right? So we have a variety of topics. We are going to go ahead and delve right into our uh, introductions here. And actually, we're going to do this a little differently. Again, we're forward-leaning with this topic. So rather than me just read off their bios, and I do know each of these individuals too, um, I think it's more fun for them to introduce themselves. So. They are coming. I am Lauren Reinerman-Jones, and I am actually I have an appointmentship with uh, the DAU, a special appointment professorship with DAU, as well as I'm an analyst for Southwest Research Institute. And I have a breadth of uh, background, 25 years plus, of DOD work across the services. So that's me in a nutshell. And I'll go on to Dr. Andy McKinley. Hi, uh, Andy McKinley. I'm a biomedical engineer by training. <laughs> I manage the Air Force's neuroscience portfolio, so uh, a lot of the work that I manage is focused on uh, interfacing with the brain. How do we extract more information from the brain, and how do we augment brain activity in a way that uh, improves performance? Uh, also, can we uh, inject information into the brain? Can we write to the brain? You know, think back to the matrix for those of you that are old enough to, <laughs> to remember that. But uh, those types of technologies are actually starting to become real. And uh, I actually have a little bit of uh, data over here just to show real quick, just to kind of kick off the discussion. 
But um, yeah, so uh, brain-machine interfaces, um, enhancing, sustaining, enabling, and restoring performance is what we focus on. So these are all healthy, normal people applications, so much in line with the super soldier idea. Um, we work a lot with DARPA, um, but one of the projects that we have been engaged with for the past uh, almost six years now has been looking at uh, stimulating cranial nerves to change brain activity in ways that improve performance. And so the original DARPA program is called Targeted Neuroplasticity for Training, and the whole idea there was to uh, see if you can stimulate a cranial nerve that downstream affects uh, key pieces of brain, like locus ceruleus, that uh, enhances memory uh, acquisition and retention. And uh, lo and behold, it does. So we, this is some of the data from the lab where we were doing a simulated ISR, intelligent surveillance and reconnaissance task, where people were learning to identify uh, targets. And uh, people were able to learn uh, about 20% faster. Um, they were able to retain the information better. So about 90 days after we completed the training, the effect size actually got bigger. So now the difference is 35% between the groups because uh, the, the group that didn't get stimulation or the, the group that got the sham stimulation actually uh, forgot more information more quickly. So their memory decay rate was faster. And uh, so what does the technology look like? Well, it's, it's this, essentially it looks like a, a, a a razor, right? <laughs> An electric razor. You'd hold it up to your neck for two minutes, and then you have uh, hours of, of after effect. In fact, uh, we did a study for NASA, which is down there in the bottom corner. Uh, we showed we could sustain performance for about uh, 12 to 14 hours, and that has been replicated. Uh, these learning results have been rep replicated outside our lab, within um, other labs, uh, and in the field. So. Uh, we actually got some money from OUSD uh, from a program called Boost, and we uh, uh, the whole purpose of Boost is to take biotechnologies and get them to last a little bit over the finish line uh, to a product that uh, is transitionable. And so um, what we developed is basically in this picture here. It's, uh, it's actually now a, a commercial product called Taxdim. They also have a uh, commercial product for uh, everybody else called uh, the True Vaga. Um, it's a company called Electrocore. But uh, we did do validation out in the field. So uh, we, we've done, this is one of the examples. This was uh, with uh, the Defense Language Institute. So we took real linguist trainees uh, and we gave them a vocabulary learning task every day over the course of a week. And we found that uh, again, about a 20% uh, acceleration in terms of their, their learning. Uh, one of the other really cool things was with their, um, with their mood. So um, this device, uh, at least the medical form of the device, has actually been cleared as a, um, a treatment for uh, PTSD because of this robust mood effect, right? So people feel more energetic, less anxious, um, less nervous, uh, they feel happier, uh, they feel more confident in their ability to do the tasks. Um, and one of the things that we found in this study was that uh, you know, more people, <laughs> people that were doing the training um, 
the, the folks getting the sham stimulation, they obviously got more tired after they finished the, the training. Um, the folks that got stimulation, though, actually felt more energetic. So I don't know if you've ever sat down and decided, I'm going to learn a really hard foreign language like Arabic. I'm going to sit here and do this for an hour. And at the end of that hour, you're like, now I'm more, I'm more energetic. <laughs> I'm ready to go uh, uh, about the rest of my day. But these people felt that way, and that's just insane to me. So uh, really robust effects on mood. Uh, and then we also are looking at new ways, new sensors uh, to extract information from the brain. So there's a program called Individualized Neural Learning System that just wrapped up, but we have a follow-on uh, going now. Uh, but looking at some novel sensors, so a wearable uh, magnetoencephalography system uh, was one of the things that uh, was under development here and uh, very, very, very close. So um, at any rate, this uh, new technology will allow us to extract more information easier and have uh, 3D localization capabilities as well. So we know where the signal is coming from in the brain uh, with higher resolution. Uh, and then we've also been working with DARPA on this next generation non-surgical neurotechnology program. So this is, um, we, we've actually been working with a company called Teledyne to uh, look at technologies that are able to write to the brain at very high resolution. And so um, that this is very early, uh, so there's still a lot of development to do, but this is something that will, that will be coming in the future uh, to be able to wear a device that non-invasively can write information directly to your brain um, without any surgery, without any, uh, actually not even <laughs> any uh, uh, sensations on your skin. So this is, uh, this is really exciting technology to us as well. So that is, uh, that's basically all I have. So, Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, and we're excited to be here. Not all of us put together slides, so I, I just want to say those were incredible and exciting to, to see and the angle that, that I take. Um, so my background is uh, I am the learning engineering lead for SAIC. Uh, previous to this, uh, I was the director of innovation for the Advanced Distributed Learning Initiative under the Office of Secretary of Defense. And so in, in that regard, what we're looking at across all of these uh, learning engineering spaces is really how do we prepare for the ability to ingest all of what he just described, right? What Andy's talking about is these elements that we can either uh, mix with the brain uh, or we're certainly going to be hearing about as well how we do that physically uh, and, and how those technologies are all going to connect from a data perspective, um, from a learning perspective, and then how we harness that to be able to uh, be able to move people into those operational spaces faster and more efficiently. And so the focus um, of the work that I've done, although uh, I, I don't have studies to bring today, um, so I want to talk a little bit more generally about what it is that's changing across this spectrum. Uh, is, is really looking at how do we, from a policy perspective, how do we, from a strategy perspective, and how do we, at the tactical level, look at how we set up our syllabi? How do we think about joint operations training? How do we make sure that we are connecting all of the dots so that that information about the human can be taken in ethically, it can be combined in order to make recommendations going forward? And then
then how is it that we ingest all of the learning science information that we know? In other words, when do we help someone out? When do we push them forward? When do we hold them back, right? A starting point is how do we get them energized? I love that, right? But on the other hand, then what do we do with that energy? How long can we, we push that? And, and where can we put that energy? And how can we use it most effectively? So all of those questions start to get answered as we think from a learning engineering space. Thank you, JJ. Hey, everybody. I'm George Maytook from the Army DEFCOM Soldier Center <coughs> in Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> Sensitive. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, so I lead the uh, Mastery S&T program. It's a five-year S&T effort um, to measure, predict, and enhance individual and small unit performance, tactical performance. So it's very task-focused, task-oriented. Um, I actually do have a couple slides, but I don't know if I have to get up to move them. Do I have to get up to move them? No? Oh. Maybe my slides are gone. All right, so I'll just talk. They're at the end? All right. But we will hold your slides for how about one moment? No problem. And oh, you want to talk? I think you said hold the slides until later. Well, I can just talk. It's fine. Okay. Go for it. I know, in the Army, we can't talk without slides usually, but that's okay. Um, so, you know, there's a couple different ways to think about super soldiers. I, well, there's more than a couple. Well, a couple that I put on a slide at some point. Um, one of them is very equipment focused. You know, it's like all the stuff we give them to make them more capable. Um, but really what we've been focusing on in mastery uh, in particular is all of the, the human X factors, those attributes, those traits, those states. What are, those, what are those things about soldiers that make them more capable outside of just their equipment? Make them more resilient, make them more lethal, make them better decision makers, um, physically capable, all of that stuff. Um, and what, you know, I hadn't thought about it until we were sitting here. I don't know that we're ever going to get to that super soldier threshold because the, 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 the goalposts are always moving, right? If you go ask someone from the Re Revolutionary War, you know, what's a super soldier to you? And they describe something and we'd be like, we'd be there now, right? You can put, you know, tens of rounds on target really fast. You, you can carry all this weight because we're just bigger than they used to be. You know, you, you can you can call fires in from the sky over a thing that doesn't, that, you know, it's not like a runner. Like that's pretty, that's pretty super, right? So I think what we've envisioned now as a super soldier for 2040 or 2050, you know, is probably something that's attainable, but we'll never quite get there because we'll always keep reimagining what that looks like. Great point, and I love that start to discussion here in just a moment. So, thank you. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. I am Erwin Hudson. And I was a late addition, so I didn't get slides either. <laughs> However, um, just to give you a little background about myself, um, I come at come I come at this topic you know, from a diff lot of different perspectives. You know, starting out uh, as a programmer with SEIC a long time ago in '91, I became a CETA contractor. So I've been a, I was a CETA contractor for about 10 years with the government, and then after that, I finally became a government government engineer, civilian, in 2004. And since then, I came in an acquisition with P.O. Stride. And after two years of understanding that I didn't like acquisition, I joined S&T. And that's where I've been ever since. Uh, we um, started out with RDECOM. We switched to um, ARL, Army Research Laboratory. And then now I'm home with DEFCOM, Soldier Center. I'm enjoying every minute of it. Um, my research deals, you know, mainly with um, decision making. You know, I was looking at trying to create an effective assessment tool that, you know, enhanced talent management. And one of the main things is personnel selection, and the second one was training. So I come at it from that perspective. And 
Looking at the super soldier, though, I am more going to probably play devil's advocate, you know, because in, even in dealing with autonomous weapons and autonomous systems over the years, I've always not been that much of a fan because of the ethics. Coming from a coaching background also, I consider it cheating, although we do know that all is fair in love and war, but, you know, I still want to somehow play fair, and that's where I look at it, and, and, and becoming, you know, creating a super soldier is, is creating advantages, which, at the end of the day, I know we're still looking out for our warfighters, so that's the perspective I'll be coming from. Thank you all so much for introducing yourselves and giving us an initial startup perspective. Again, we wanted to spend a lot of time, because oftentimes with these panels, right, it, it's very interactive, very dynamic, and then it's over, right? And so we wanted to spend a lot of time for that interaction and discussion and conversation. But being the moderator, I get the first set of questions. So... <clears throat> Um, I've kind of put together, again, a set of questions that will span, again, this whole group's backgrounds and expertise and hopefully cover, and I don't mean to ignore all of you folks over there, too, so you can just yell at me, okay, if you have a question, but to make sure we cover also the range of interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary backgrounds that are in this room, right, and that come from all over the world, right? That's one of the great pieces that we have here at ITSIC in this community, and so I think our panel really highlights the range of that. Um, so my first question is very generic. What makes a super soldier? So is it a person? Is it a robot? What is it that makes a super soldier? Now I'll open that up for the panel to take. Uh, okay, I guess I'm in the middle, so I'll do this. <laughs> um, I look at it very outcome-based. Um, and, you know, I, we just had General Rainey, uh, the Army Futures Command uh, commander, up to visit us uh, very recently. And, you know, his, his perspective is, at least for the foreseeable future, it's never going to be a fully autonomous army. There will always be, always being, in quotes, I guess, but there will always be a soldier involved. One way, shape, or form, there's going to be a soldier involved, and that will be more, you know, of a teaming exercise than an individual exercise. So I, I try to look at it. Um, more outcome-based. What are the effects we want to have on the battlefield? What are the effects we want to have on the enemy? And then you kind of can decompose that into the different abilities a person needs, you know, to be able to sustain themselves physically and mentally and, and socially in a very violent environment, coupled with all the other things that we need, you know, from networks to weapons to food and water and everything else. So I, I bring it to the outcomes. I, I guess I look at it more... Um like from a cyborg kind of perspective, you know, uh, a, a person that's augmented by technology, you know, their biology is augmented, their physiology is augmented in a way that allows them to perform uh, or be more effective than somebody that without those uh, te technological aids. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's fairly broad, but I'm thinking, you know, things that mm -hmm. interact more directly with the physiology and, and uh, biology. Same here. Um, coming from a little more seasoned perspective, you know, back when uh, Six Million Dollar Man, some of you guys might remember him, or Steve Austin, the bionic man, and someone being able to do more than any other human could do, run fat, I think it was better, faster, uh, and stronger. So now, like I said, I start moving more to a, toward the cyborg type being able to be more resilient, 
uh, more effective and more lethal. So that's what I say. So I'll add on to that. I, a, I'll concur on all these points. I think it's, it's really being able to expand the capability of the human, um, at least to date, right? Like we will get into a point where we have autonomous space um, elements. I'm just going to use the word element because I think it covers a lot of different possibilities. But I think there's additional piece to it, which is going to be that, that super fleet concept. So it's not just how do I enhance uh, everyone, in other words, making each brain work faster, better, deeper, um, <laughs> or, or to be able to put the exoskeleton in order to, to add these wearable devices, but additionally to look at how each individual human's innate uh, traits may actually interact with that and escalate that further. So in other words, looking across people versus simply looking at each individual. And I think as we look at that super fleet uh, and joint operation spaces, we may be able to also extend uh, based on what each individual is, also which um, branch we're talking about, and be able to go even further. One of the questions that I got recently uh, at the Pentagon was, so, so JJ, why do I want to have uh, anybody be specialized? Why can't I just have everybody be uh, the same? Because then I can move them in and out as I need to. And my response was that you are pitting your versatility against their expertise. And what we need to be able to do is have expertise and capability to the furthest extent for each individual, but then also be able to look at that uh, across all of um, our entities as well. And I think that's when we start maximizing uh, and optimizing the system versus just the individual. So I, I, did you get a hold of my questions beforehand? Because you just read right into this, David. So my, my second question actually has to do with this idea of individuality uh, versus, you know, everyone, right, having these capabilities. When we think super soldier, we're typically thinking of a select few, right, or um, advancing those. However, if we are talking about, you know, not the entire force and fleet and everything else, every, every warfighter having the superpowers, uh, who do we select? And how are they selected? What are the characteristics uh, for selection, right? Uh, do we want to amplify characteristics that are already existent in those individuals? Or are we trying to supplement and add and com or complement, right? So I open that floor. So my experience um, you know, in the 20 some years I've been doing this is that it's far easier to uh, improve a function that is um, not already at a high level, right? So taking uh, somebody who's already basically really close to that ceiling and trying to get them all the way to the ceiling is way harder than getting somebody that's way down here and bringing them up, right? So um, I think at least the, the types of technologies that, that I work with on the neuroscience side, it's um, you get far more bang for your buck with folks or with bringing up uh, uh, delinquent functions that are not uh, where they should be. I want to be devil's advocate necessarily, but um, I guess coming from the sports perspective, because I mean, I've, I've been coaching and training for 30 years, and I honestly have seen it, you know, it's so much easier to take someone that's here even higher than from low to up. I mean, when you don't have the skills to start from the basics, it's a lot tougher. So it might be a little bit different with the neuroscience part, and but even learning, it's just a lot harder from the, you know, taking it from the sports perspective in that world. 
that's and that's where I come from with it. I mean, I, I think I've seen a little bit more, Andy, what you were talking about, uh, because we work with both special operators and general purpose forces, and to get that last extra percent, you know, the special operations guys are willing to spend that time and effort and money to get after it, uh, but it's really hard to close that gap sometimes because they're already experts. Um, you know, we, 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 we always talk about, you know, as we move forward, training will be more individualized, attention will be more individualized, models, performance models will be more individualized. Um, so I think, I think that's probably where the focus is naturally going to be for the next, you know, 10, 15 years or so. But um, what JJ was talking about, you know, working as a system, you know, it, the old, the, the old uh, logo or the, the slogan when I was a kid was uh, an army of one. And like, that's, that's never been the case, right? Yeah. You're never, if you're fighting as one, there's something very, very wrong. Um, so it's really, you know, how do you, how do we optimize you to then optimize the unit? I think is where we're going to go. In theory, that's a good way to look at it. I mean, army of one, because right? you're supposed to be fighting in unison. However, like, go back to the sports analogy. I mean, you have to be specific in your positions. You have to have different types, positions, different levels. And a little bit back on um, his his answer. Yeah, you're right. You, I mean, it's easier to take this lower level up a little bit because there's so much room to grow. Getting to that next one is a little bit, yeah, I think that's where you're good at, is that it's hard to get it to the next level because they're already up there so far. Yeah. So I understand that. I, I, think, it's gonna be, I, I think it's gonna be both, um, but I think this okay. is also an empirical question, right? I mean, there is gonna be, how do you get all ships to rise, of course, yes. um, and so I, I think to your point, yes, that's where we're gonna put first procurement dollars, is how do we get everybody to operate at a level higher than they are currently, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I think also, as we're going to really enter a peer fight, it is not gonna be about just having generalist, it's also going to be about having those that can elevate past that. And I think maybe that's where the question comes in, how does that selection occur? Maybe this is where we start using better data analytics. Maybe this is where we start using more of that AI to help us identify who has the propensity to go further than what we would expect and or how do we get that technology to expand and double um, or multiply is probably a better word, multiply what is capable. So in other words, our definition of expert today may be here. How do we get our, our definition to be up here? And when do we need to have those and how many of those? That I think is going to be much more of an empirical question and it's going to depend on the operational environment that we face, which we may not even be able to predict as well as we did in the past, which is also going to come into play. So. I think this is going to be much more complex than, you know, here's the one thing we're going to be able to do and this is how we're going to do it. I think, um, you know, just speaking from a, a training perspective, what I keep thinking about is how do we get in a place where we have those options to exercise? And of course, one of them is we have got to start collecting data and we've got to be able to understand what data we're collecting and what we can do with it. And so it's super encouraging to hear the research that's happening. What I would hope to see is that we start getting into policy, the approvals to be able to collect that data so that we are able to start making these decisions informed versus necessarily uh, our best guess. Can I tag on to that? Sure.
I love, I love everything you just said. What I want to see that we get to is more targeted training, yeah. right? Because we, we train everything, right? We have all this mandatory training. We have all these things. We, there's this long list of things we need to do. And so we peanut butter everything, right? Instead of being able to measure the one, the, the, those key things that matter for the job that you have to do and then spending more time on those instead of doing a little bit of time on everything. That's where I want to see us get. And, and just that in and of itself will help our soldiers be more capable. So, you know, the question really comes from also um, Roger Paris Sermon, right? So, founder of Neuroergonomics, and, uh, you know, him, he and his students uh, completed work um, on doing SNPs of DNA, right? And they found a couple of super performers, right? So, if you had these super performers, and this was specific to vigilance or sustained attention at the time, right? <clears throat> then, um, that are predisposed that have this somehow genetic capability, even though they weren't necessarily academically exceptional or anything else, are those the people that we want to target? Um, you know, that already have this innate skill set, right? That come to the table with something uh, versus being way down here to optimize and get, bring them further. Uh, not everybody becomes a Navy SEAL, right? Not everybody, everybody goes to, uh, to become special forces. Uh, so the same way that there's some selection process there, how will we select for a super soldier? Yeah, I think uh, with new uh, analyses of the advent of, of AI as well, there's a lot more opportunities to match people with their uh, optimal jobs that they would be good at, right? So, um, for example, on the attention thing, right? Uh, Marvin Chun uh, has done a lot of work on uh, functional connectivity analysis with MRI data, right? So he's been able to show that uh, you, know, you can image somebody's brain with uh, MRI, and based on the functional connectivity in the frontal cortex, you can predict their attentional capabilities all the way from people that have uh, ADD all the way up to these super performers that uh, can maintain their attention for ungodly amounts of time. And uh, you, know, there's, you can also start to, to look at things like uh, resting state EEGs. There's been some, some work uh, over the past couple of years uh, you know, showing uh, some really interesting uh, results in terms of being able to predict how well somebody's going to do it at a particular job just based on this five-minute resting state EEG. So you know, are there these simple, low-cost uh, low time investment kinds of data collections that you can do up front to help guide uh, the you know what training somebody should be focusing on, um, and then you know when they get into the training, uh, can use that information as feedback, right? So can you do real time monitoring to, pr to uh, provide uh, the, the training material <laughs> with the information on on what the person's brain is doing, right? So based on on my brain, maybe it says, all right, you need a uh, less difficult <laughs> uh, training for, for your next uh, uh, session. Uh, and, you know, somebody else, maybe George, is, you know, hey, you know, it looks like you're, you've got this mastered, so you need to go to the next level here. Um, you know, because our performance may be the same, but, you know, maybe my brain's working way harder to get to that performance than, than George's. So this will be an interesting question, I think. Um, Depending on where it goes, so you know we do we do some we do this crudely already. Like when people assess, right? They get kind of a 
we test them a little bit, and they get a, a range of things that are available to them. And it's not necessarily you're steering them because of their abilities, but to some degree you are coarsely. Um, but imagine, imagine a future where we're able to do that and be like, listen, you're going to be an aviator. And it's like, well, I don't want to be an aviator. I want to be an infantryman. Like, no, 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 you're going to be an aviator. Like, well, that could cause some issues. But what really, what really is going to be kind of where the rubber meets the road, in my opinion, is when you say there are 50 slots and these are the 50 because of their natural innate abilities, not because necessarily of how well you have been doing. Because, you know, it's like the American experience. We all think we can be our best and we can work harder than everybody else and get to where we want to go because this is the American way. We're going to work hard and get there. And if somebody says, no, 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 your brain patterns say you're not going to be a good aviator or you're not going to be as good as these guys, even though they've never flown a day in their lives, that's going to be, it's a very different way of doing business. It's a very different way of thinking. Would it probably make better soldiers? Maybe. But, you know, you deal with morale and maybe legality even. Fairness, there's a lot of questions there. Yeah. Okay. I'm thinking more back to what exactly are we having a super soldier do? I mean, are we looking at speed? We're looking at decision making? Are we looking at, you know, power, lethality? It just, I guess it depends on all that because, you know, I go back to the movies. I'm a movie buff on the Marvel movies, and um, Captain America wasn't a, you know, he wasn't a big guy. He wasn't a big, strong. He wasn't like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Terminator. He was a, a little scrawny guy, and all of a sudden, the super serum or whatever turned him into this warrior. So, I guess when we go to it, it depends on what we're having these super soldiers actually do. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, on my on my. Imaginary slides that don't exist. My, my second, my first slide was like the traditional super soldier. They're going to be amazingly physically capable. They're going to have wonderful decision making and be fast and resilient and whatever, whatever, whatever. But the second slide was like, okay, what if the super soldier of 2050 is sitting at a keyboard? Right? They could be the most lethal soldier in history if they have access to the effects and the networks to run them, and they never have to do more than this. Like that's that could be the super soldier of the future. So it gets absolutely back to. What are the tasks they need to perform for, to be successful, and then, and then what do they need to be able to do? Well, so, JJ, would you like to add anything before I go to the next question? So that actually feeds right into one of my other questions, right? Which is, uh, you know, like if it's is it an implanted chip? Is it external technologies? You know, let's dig a little deeper. What are the technologies that are going to be required here, right? Um, is it you know we're we're all in the era now of uh, of AI, right? But AI is so generic of a term, right? I mean, where there's first generation, second generation AI, a lot of it's just the pattern recognition. We're probably all using ChatGPT by now, I would hope. Um, <laughs> but there's also the third generation, like neuromorphics, right? Uh, which gets down to the combination of the software and hardware into a tiny little chip that can be implanted, right? Um, so will it actually just be the external technology, like they're sitting down and they have better hardware available to them, or is it a combination? Uh, actually, in some of the joint slides on here, I don't know if you want to share some of those, but sure. they talk about things like um, yeah, yeah, synthetic sure. blood, allowing you to be underwater for much longer uh, than, than currently able, and of course, being able to have uh, drops in the eyes to create night vision, uh, the ability to, uh, you know, from a, I, again, I fall back to training because that's that's my area, but so I'll say the ability to learn something much faster. One of the yep. things in the Air Force we talk about is uh, as we add airframes and, and as we get into sixth gen where we're dealing with semi-autonomous vehicles, the amount of data an individual is going to have to take in and the speed at which they're going to have to uh, take up the ability to, to utilize.
utilize a new airframe maybe very, very fast. How do we uh, get that information into the individual quickly uh, and also recognize what they have to unlearn and relearn? How do we do all of those assessments? So some of it is really cool stuff, right? <laughs> like just the idea of synthetic blood in and of itself is just this mind boggling and what that might allow you to do. And some of it is just really tangible things. Okay, great, you have these capabilities. When and how do we use them? And for whom do we use them to make most sense? So I think when we start talking about, well, what does it look like? It's going to look like all of these things. You are going to have operators who are drone operators that are sitting at a, a keyboard. You are going to have folks that are Navy SEALs that are going to use the capabilities uh, in, in night vision and, and blood to be able to do things. You are going to have individuals who, who have to be the more cognitive weapon systems, as I like to call them, who are going to need the neuro boost and expansion um, that Andy's talking about. And, and so we're going to need all of these pieces. Uh, I think part of the question is, it's, this is largely available in pieces parts. And one of our hallmark challenges in DOD is bringing it all together. Uh, so we think there's some pragmatic challenges beyond the ooh-ah awesomeness, right? Um, one of the things we talk about at ITSIC commonly is that modeling and simulation is so many bells and whistles but do we use those bells and whistles to actually improve training? Not always. Um, and so to me, this is, this is an extension of that same concept. This is a lot of bells and whistles of exciting possibilities. What's the combination that makes most sense and when? Absolutely. Well, I think that gets us also to what, are we, what risks are we willing to take? Yeah, great. Right, there's, I mean, that when we, we had our first like, you know, panel meeting uh, a few weeks ago, that was my that was my Debbie Downer kind of thing. It's like, it's like, okay, you know, there are all these wonderful things we can do, you know, scientifically proven in the midst of being proven, definitely concepts. And then there's like, well, we're trying to do simple stuff, like put a, put a watch on a soldier. And it's like, whoa, whoa. Have you thought about this whole litany of policies? And it's like, oh my God, where, how are we going to get from like this to implanted, you know, chips to do X, Y, and Z? You know, you know, um, I'll, I'll differ with you for just just a moment. You know, we don't want a fair fight. We really don't. This is not an honorable thing. We want our guys to be overmatching any possible enemy, right? So why aren't we giving them pharmaceutical enhancements? Why are we making them run, you know, all week when we could just be, you know, giving them steroids and send them to the gym or something? Like, there are all these other things you could do if you change societal norms and ethics, right, and laws in some cases, because other countries don't have those same boundaries, right? So what... What, will, what could end up happening, in my opinion, is we find ourselves in a situation where our soldiers, as talented and, and trained and ready as they are, are now facing an unfair fight because another country is willing to say, hey, guess what? You, male, are a good aviator. You, female, are a good aviator. You're going to make the best aviator babies we've ever seen. And I don't care that you're not married. You're going to make babies, and we're going to get really great aviators. Look, you're going to breed people, right? That's a thing. Um, you know, are they willing to go that extra step that we are not? And until there's a real forcing function for us where we are losing yeah. or we are falling so far behind the technological curve, I don't see us taking huge leaps. And you know what? You read my, my questions too, right? What's the, what are the, the things that are standing in the way of a super soldier happening? Yeah. Okay, let me go back a little bit to hear this point again. Yeah, because I, I thought I was the only Debbie Downer. <laughs> but, um, all right, um... What I look at, though, is you're right, you know, they do have to, you know, we do have to look at those things. Because I, first thing I thought about was research. How is that going to get by in our region? There's no way that's going to get by. So, um, but from the human standpoint, when you come to sports like steroids and things like that, there's side effects. There's always going to be something to deal with. As far as the breeding, a 
numbers, I understand that because that's you know natural. But when you start adding things to humans, the ethical part of it is what's going to happen to that human afterwards. Sure. Plus, if that human turns on you, um, just like we consider robots, the autonomous robots, which we're afraid of those. So that's where I go. I mean, I'm, I'm a little concerned with that when we think that we can just start you know, competing with these other ones. Why not make more lethal weapon systems that's going to stop the adversary, the, the, you know, the ones over in, in the foreign countries that are coming trying to get us, to, that are creating super soldiers? That's what I think. I think, um, you know, as you mentioned, risk, right? I mean, the, the risk to benefit ratio is really important when you start looking at the technologies that are going to make super soldiers. You know, it, doing a surgical implant for somebody that is uh, debilitated because of an injury or, or disease, um, that's a different risk to benefit ratio than somebody that is healthy, normal, and happy otherwise. And, you know, you're trying to you know, give them a, a, an advantage over an adversary. Um, so, in, in my opinion, if you're going to go into um, you know, very invasive kinds of technologies like implanted chips, the benefit will have to be tremendous in order for people to uh, want to have that done to them. Um, and you know, I think in the near term, uh, non-invasive are much more appealing because it's you know, safe, reliable, reversible, right? Um, and I think the reversible piece is the big thing, right? I mean, people don't want permanent changes done to their body with technologies that, you know, are relatively new. So that's actually uh, a great lead into one of the questions I had and one of the questions that we received from the audience. <clears throat> so if you do these kinds of things to, you know, to an individual, um, what do you do when their service is up? What happens? Uh, or are they just literally then owned by the government for life? Terminates. How does that work? <laughs> Terminate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and how do you manage that? How do you manage when they get back into the real world? I mean, one of the, the greatest you know, problems that we've faced more recently for our warfighters is PTSD, right? So what, do you, what happens you know, psychologically and mentally, and yet arguably perhaps by having these interventions, we would see fewer outcomes like that. I mean, these are some of the questions that you have to ask, right? We can't make the assumption that by enhancing the capability of the brain that, the da that there's gonna be damage afterwards. Perhaps we're gonna have higher energy after learning, right? Perhaps we're gonna be able to insulate the natural brain in ways we haven't been able to before. Perhaps we're going to be able to help regulate. One of the things that um, I talk about a lot is uh, that someday we will probably all have <clears throat> something similar to um, when, when people have an insulin pump, right, to, to regulate their insulin, we may have one for dopamine, <laughs> right, where, where our dopamine and serotonin is all just constantly regulating. We are all just, we're, we're good. <laughs> we're good all the time, you know. Um, so I, I, I make it a little bit of a joke, but, but you know, we, we can read it. Brave New World and many other dystopias and, and consider these, these concepts, but I, I think we have to be careful assuming that negative is going to be the result. Perhaps this will actually enhance. And I also think we have to be careful assuming people wouldn't want to try it. I think there are many people that would be interested in um, body enhancements. One of the things that is interesting that is happening in our cult culture right now, and probably almost everyone in this room is, is in the 
generation uh, a, a ways up from it, but the next generation below us is questioning everything mm -hmm. about themselves, about society, about relationships, about um, the way, we're talking a lot about it in recruitment and retention of military because the straight, narrow, clear requirements that we've always had now don't entirely match what we need and also don't match what the next generation is bringing to the table and some of the questions that they're having. We're seeing, you know, it used to be that having a tattoo was kind of a shocking thing. Now, it's, I mean, I, I never saw a mom when I was young that had a tattoo. Now it's so commonplace, I don't even think anything of it. And you may not think that's a big shift, but that is a big shift in the way we change our bodies, the way we enhance our bodies, the way we have plastic surgeries, the way that we um, are doing lifelong learning. We wouldn't even think of that. Right now we're talking about uh, professional certificates and whatnot. The point is change is becoming normal, where it used to be, you finished high school or you finished college or you finished military and you had a, a, a homeostasis that you hit and then you developed across that time, but more statically. Now constant change is happening, which means that culturally we are changing to an environment where people are going to be more open to changing their bodies, changing their minds, enhancing things, willing to try things that maybe in our generation and the generation above us would not have been something that we would have entertained. So I, I wonder how that's going to play into it, and I don't think we can ignore it. I do think that the developmental trajectory of young people in our, world, in our country is changing. So toward that end, we have two questions from the audience also. Um, one is from uh, Stephen Lake at Utrecht, and the other is an anonymous. But they are related to this very topic of recruitment. Um, you know, so how would you project to recruit the super soldier <clears throat> in the near future? And the other one, like I said, that is related is, uh, you know, what's the path to becoming that super soldier? Is it citizen to super soldier? Or are you already enlisted or, or active duty? The DAU answer is it depends. Right? <laughs> um, that's a... Repeat, what was the first part of the question? That's what so I wanted to get to. How would you project to recruit the super soldier? Yeah, so. I mean, it's be all you can be, right? Because what you're really talking about <laughs> is, right, you're, ra you're raising the top limit of what you're capable of. Right, that's how I look, right, just you, be all you can be. Um, but that's really what it is, right? You're, you're changing the perception of, you know, this is how far you can get in life. You will be this capable. You will be able to lift this much weight. You can score this well on your, you know, standardized tests. What you're saying is, no, 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 we can actually unlock... 25% more potential in you. I think that gets really interesting for people. When I think the other thing is, is that gets away it's from the, um, you know, fight is one idea too, to the, the next generation of individuality um, and for wanting to kind of be that best self, right? So uh, that's kind of an interesting thought. And I think people want to be around others who are also their best, right? I mean, uh, you know, it's not gospel, right? You go look at the Band of Brothers movie, right? They, they talked about it wasn't just some person to their left or their right. It was another paratrooper, someone that volunteered that they were going to be better than every other soldier because they were going to jump out of that plane and train really hard to do so. So if you are now surrounded by people who are the best they can possibly be, that gets, I think that's really interesting for that high-performing team thing, but also trusting that your comrades around you are going to be capable and have your back and all that goodness. I mean, like the saying says, you know, birds of a feather flock together, you know, so you want to kind of rise with the group. Yeah. And I think it's also that uh, rec you have to have the recognition when there's somebody that you're, you're, you know, you're, they're never going to be top-notch at, at, 
a given profession. For example, you know, I, I will never be an Olympic runner, ever. <laughs> I, I can train. Save the beard, you'll be yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I, I could train every day for, uh, you know, since the day I was born, and I would never be an Olympic runner. But, you know, so there, I think uh, when you start looking even at some of the cognitive things, I mean, there's some people that are built in a way, or their brain is structured in a way that maybe they're not going to ever be, you know, at the top-notch intel officer or whatever it is. Uh, and so I, I think if we can get in, get some windows into uh, those kinds of capabilities, uh, you can help guide them along their path to say, like, you're, you're not going to be really good at this, but these other things over here, you know, at least the data showing you're, you've got a really good chance of being, you know, top of your class or whatever. So I think uh, this kind of leads in a little bit to one of the other questions that we have here. <clears throat> So based on uh, all of these topics, do we still need uh, diversity or neurodiversity in a team for best results? Or again, are we looking towards this individuality? Well, I think generally speaking, having multiple perspectives is always beneficial because otherwise groupthink is, is only by chance going to be the best option, right? You, you always want to have uh, the a diverse set of options to choose from and then use those perspectives to elevate the gestalt of that decision so that you have the best outcome. So I don't know that, I, I, think, I think you're always looking for diversity. I think um, the question more is how will we be enhancing these teams and you know, are we enhancing them to all be versatile or are we enhancing them to be splinter um, talent? Um, and I don't know, I mean, maybe we are making you into an Olympic runner. I mean, I, I, I think it's an, well, I mean, and, and, I, and I joke, but so, so I have a son that was born with no chambers or valves in his heart. It was essentially a balloon. Um, he has a prosthetic interior heart, and I was told that he would never be able to do sports. He is now an ultra marathoner. He runs a sub three hour marathon and holds the fastest known time for the um, Manhattan Loop. He is an enhanced human in some way, right? And we joke about the fact that, and now, to your point, he had an issue, so nobody minded doing surgery. But if we push the envelope and ask that ethical question, hey, can I take somebody and make them have an endurance heart, would you take it? Maybe. What the um, fuck? And so I think that those are some of the questions that come up. I mean, his heart is functioning better than what it would have on its own. Like, so it's interesting that we, we have these challenges. Um, I, I think we're always going to be looking for diverse talent. I, I think that's yeah, happy I mean, to be disagreed with, but I, I don't I don't see why that would go put away. It's a matter of how shark. you put the puzzle pieces together. Yeah. Now, speaking for the diverse person up here on the, on the panel, <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. So Definitely, maybe, diversity is always key. Maybe for a man's brain. I mean, if we're, not, if we're not thinking differently in our teams, even as high-performing as those teams might be, we become predictable. And if we're predictable, right. exactly. the enemy is going to figure out what we're going to do, and we'll be dead. So I mean, let's not do that. Creativity and diversity is the number one benefit of our nation. It is. And that is what allows us to look at a more group think or single-led nation and, and say we can win. Yeah, as yeah, long as we're working together. Yeah. I love it. So, you know, a lot of, we have two questions, but, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about and a lot of what we've shown on the screen also, a lot of, it's physical enhancements and uh, alterations making us super soldiers. Uh, what do we think about, you know, what mental items, we touched on this a little bit obviously with PTSD question. Uh, but what about, you know, for training metacognitive skills, uh, those types of things? 
I mean, I, I think there are uh, there are ways to. There's lots of ways to influence brain activity. Uh, it doesn't have to require directed energy or some external uh, physical device. Um, you know, I, I think there's lots of other alternatives that people have been looking at. You know, everything from like acupressure to meditation to uh, cognitive training. Um, you know, lots of different ways to, uh, well, and even uh, using your, your own physiological feedback, you know, just biofeedback to help you, uh, uh, contr you know, <laughs> control pieces of brain that you wouldn't normally uh, control with conscious thought. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's lots of opportunities there as well. Um, I, I think uh, typically those kinds of things uh, don't have as large of an effect size as some of the other things that we've been seeing, but certainly there's there's options there. Well, in the, back in the sports world and um, also in the training world, we, we talk about something called muscle memory, creating muscle memory, which we've kind of found that you really don't create muscle memory. It's more brain that's still stimulated to do it, and I do that through repetition. And I think repetition is the key to do a lot of that, creating that memory. So we have so many great questions coming in here. Well, uh, okay, so before you, I want to hit this though. I think I think there's something to be said here, which is, as as rightly has been pointed out, there's there's this ultimate goal of like being able to enhance the human <clears> at these uh, what we consider today to be fair extreme measures, right? Implants and whatnot. In the current state, though, we have so much data and opportunity for things that we could optimize what we have available to us. And it is because of the way that we have been doing training across the services, very mission-based, very um, linear, very much hasn't changed a lot since the at least 90s, if not 70s in some cases. Um, and we are not ready to even ingest these kinds of protocols that do help with metacognition or the ability to think about what you're, what you're looking for and what you're thinking for and how to make those decisions or, or how to enhance decision making beyond single mission examples. Um, and so as we think about perhaps two tiers of intervention, there's what's ultimate that we need to be ready for, but also what can we do today? Um, and I think that really has to be hammered home because a lot of that can be done without pushing the ethical button too far, without requiring massive change in policy, but also uh, is increasing substantially the impact that we have uh, and recognizing where the other nations are running ahead. Uh, we did a study, um, just a review of the research in uh, looking at e real-time EEG assessment and uh, intervention during training live. And 90% of the studies were coming out of the Asian countries, mostly China. We are not doing as much of that research as they are, and they, we are not employing it as much as they are. And they're showing improvements that they're publishing of at least 30% improvement. Those are the kinds of things that we need to be putting into our service level practices um, because we already know them. But more importantly, we know that our adversaries are using them. So for us to ignore those which are not pushing those buttons, I think, is an ethical problem on the other side, which is why are we not helping all of our personnel to be maximally prepared for something that we know that others are, are using to advantage? Sorry for my question. Sorry for my question. Oh, that's perfect. Anything else? 
Yeah, just on that, maybe and we need to start assessing what people can actually handle. Because certain people might be able to handle a lot more than others. So you're right. We do need to start looking at that. So JJ also brought up a great point, uh, you know, about our adversaries, and we have a few questions again from the audience related to that, right? So the first is um, pulling on that thread a little bit more. What or how do our adversaries, um, as well as our allies, uh, define a super soldier, and how are we uh, doing in comparison? Any thoughts? So, I'll give you a thought. The, on, the, on, the, on the adversary side, a lot of it's classified. Yeah. Right, so we can't even get into that part. But on the, on the Army side, I actually had trouble figuring that out. Right? I was like, okay, do we have a vision, a public releasable at least vision of what the super soldier looks like or what the soldier of 2040 looks like or something like that? I couldn't find one. Like, I had to make up that, that slide that disappeared. Like, I just made that stuff up. <laughs> Right? Because well, we don't have a standard that's like, okay, this is what that person's going to look like. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a, hard, it's a hard question to answer. Um, I would say, you know, I, think, I think our soldiers are like the best trained in the world. We spend a lot of time and money on training, even though we, we don't always fund the, the, the TT tag as well as it should be. But, um, but in terms of all the other enhancement stuff, like... JJ was talking about the neuro enhancement. We're not doing that. We're just not. And maybe it's what do you what do you really mean by the best trained? When you say best trained, is it the hardest trained or the smartest trained? Because they're you know they're but they do crazy things. Mm -hmm. We're a lot more ethical, so maybe that's we got to kind of probably decide what we mean by what's best yeah. for our soldiers. So kind of good segue. That's exactly right. So, you know, <clears throat> one of the questions is, is, right, who in here, let's just see, or if you feel comfortable, who in here would be a super soldier? In your own mind, of whatever it is that a super soldier is. I see some hands going up. Yeah. So, you know, some are probably saying yes in their head. Yeah, but some are saying yes in their head, but they're not comfortable raising your hand. That's totally fine, but think it. So the question really then comes down to, like, uh, as is brought up here, some of these ethics, right, and the legalities of this, and then who owns this type of thing? What happens, you know, uh, if it hits the black market? What if anybody can do this? Because, you know, it sounds pretty exciting to always be chill and right? <laughs> <laughs> relaxed in, in the face of a storm or a fire, right? I mean, if I'm going to shake my magic eight ball, I say it's going to be on the commercial market before it ever comes through here. So. Right? I mean, so I think it's going to be it's going to be what what JJ was talking about earlier with like the you know as society changes as things become more accepted, just people are doing it on their own. Then we're like, oh, you know, that sounds like a really good idea for the military. Um, and 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 this idea of the ethical boundary. And I was kind of thinking this as Coach was just talking. Um, you know, we can we we have the luxury of the ethics that we have it's because we are the best army in the world for now, right? But what happens when that's no longer the case? Are we willing then to stretch some of those rules and some of those bounds and some of those norms and policies and, and all that other business so that we have a, a better chance in a in a peer-to-peer -peer fight? I mean that's that's a high level question. That's like that's that's a policy question, that's a legal question, that's a that's a cultural, that's cultural, question. cultural absolutely. And I think it's going to change for the generations. Yeah. I 
think the gener next generation, perhaps the one after that, is going to be much more open than we are. And they're growing up with technology in ways that we we never did. I mean, we still value putting the electronics down, as I fight with my youngest constantly. <laughs> put it down. What did I say the other day? Put it down and look out the window and pretend like you're interested in anything. Um, <laughs> because we, we value that as a norm to be able to, to sit and be. Um, and she says, Mom, that's a ridiculous notion. I, then I'm bored. And her definition of not being bored is having a, a phone playing something, a computer playing something, a tablet doing something in the background, some craft that's teaching her, and oh, by the way, she's watching a movie simultaneously, yes. and probably eating. But her value system is almost different of, of what is, is considered um, reasonable and appropriate and how much she can take in at any one time. I think that's going to play into some of these decisions going forward. And also, I mean, I, I still don't tell Walgreens uh, what my phone number is because I don't want them tracking me buying who knows what at Walgreens. Um, but every other kid who's under 25 is giving all their information out right and left, right? They, they're, they're signed up for everything because they're very comfortable sharing information. Um, so I, 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 I think this boundary is going to shift. I just I don't know how far. Can we? I'm sorry. Yeah, it goes back to, I think we talked about this a while back, JJ, on, you know, say, we had a conference, I think it was at the HCI conference, about multitasking and whether we can really, you know, multitask and things like that. And, you know, we always said something's being degraded at all times. You're really not getting it all. And I remember we, we had a lot of thoughts on that, but um, that's where I get with, with the kids. Depends on the task. Depends on the task. Yeah, okay. but monotonous tasks sometimes do actually increase arousal, too. Yeah. children's brains developing differently who are being born today than, than anyone who was born 60 years ago. Yes. Um, and, and if it is the case that they are developing differently, or are they able to handle things differently than what we say today? I mean, much like my son's heart, no one said that kid was going to survive to 10 years old. The shock and awe that he runs is just, is just over the top. Well, we're going to start seeing that in everything. Medical science is changing, and the way that the children are developing is changing substantially. One last quick point on the ethics. Um, if you look at sports, um, probably most people look at it from the legality of it, whether or not to take steroids or anything like that, because everybody wants to win. They want to you know, get the big checks. So, you know, it's about the fact that you get caught, you know, you get banned. So if it wasn't banned, and back in the day, you know, they say that everybody was juicing. So okay. I think it's all about ethics. I mean, the legality of it versus the ethics. I see the quote here on your slide. Um, I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think that's the same dilemma we were in with developing the atomic bomb. It's like, well, if we don't do it, our enemy's going to do it, and we're going to lose the war. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's more of a question of how far are we willing to go to be able to defend our values with our military. So I think, uh, you know, the other ethical question here that's kind of been broached a little bit is, uh, you know, we're talking about it a lot of times from that 18-year-old on, right? But, you know, again, recruitment, you will oftentimes try to start at, what, 16, sometimes younger. 10. Uh, yeah, even the with STEM. The yep. cadet starts at 10. Right? So even 10 years old. Uh, but what if it started even younger? Uh, when we're talking about these, you know, uh, genotype and phenotype alterations. What if it started in a lab? What if it was a baby? 
And again, that comes down to these ethical and legal issues of is, is it ethical and legal to grow that? Is it ethical and legal to enhance that at that age? Um, you know, and then who owns it? So you're talking about growing soldiers? Possibly. What if you did? So that's a que uh, one of the, the, the questions that are coming in. It's like Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> I think at that point, though, you're getting past military uh, control. Uh, what you may see is military uh, influence. So uh, for those of you uh, who work in the training space, we put out from the Pentagon uh, a, a book called Modernizing Learning. What's interesting behind that book, so it, it covers birth to 75. And you might wonder, why in the world would the Pentagon want to support a strategic plan to enhance education from birth to 75. And I'll tell you, the reason I, I, and I pitched it, I said, look, here's the problem. We're getting 18-year-olds who have three major issues. We have overweight children, we have undereducated children, and we have problems with self-regulation. Now, certainly, we do not have that across the board in our country, but these are some three major issues that we're seeing at the 18 and 22-year-old age range. And I said, so what's happening then, we, our pool for military availability, in other words, those that are going to be eligible, is reducing. At the time that I pitched it, we were at 29%. I believe the numbers just came out. We're down to 22% of people at that age range who are eligible because predominantly those three factors. So the question came in. Can Department of Education influence the way that we do K-12 education, or actually even looking at birth to three because we're looking at traumas that then show up later and cause uh, issues with the individuals as they're in the young adulthood and, and not able to come into service? Uh, or does the Pentagon have to start getting involved and start supporting and understanding from that birth to 18 age range? And the answer was the Pentagon has to start putting out some information. So that is not to control or to create, but it is rather to say, we do a ton of research in education and training because we have lives on this, on, uh, you know, at, at stake. And so we know a lot about how the brain and the body works and how development happens. And in order to ensure that we have the opportunity to even recruit individuals who are prepared for advanced military training, we have to start thinking about how we develop positively um, the, the whole of our society in order to be able to be uh, functional in that 18 to 22 range. Um, if anyone's interested in that book, it is downloadable. Um, it is freely accessible. Um, it was fully uh, released. But it's an interesting take recognizing that um, all of these early experiences are actually ultimately also not just uh, affecting our adult society writ large, but specifically reducing the number of people that are eligible for service. Well, if the, the technologies that we're talking about are commercially available and the younger generations are uh, more apt to, <laughs> to, to use those and modify their bodies, I mean, it may be that you don't have to do anything different from the military's perspective. You've already got this younger culture coming up that is enhanced over uh, some of these older generations. That's a really good point. That yeah. is. Well, we're just going to grow them anyway. <laughs> but uh, it does, it, you know, the, will we own them? If, if there's this crazy future where we're growing soldiers, right? Yeah. Will we own them? I mean, I like, like sea monkeys in my head. <laughs> I mean, to some extent, you know, we already do, right? Veterans Affairs is a thing, right? And we pay TRICARE forever. 
right? We are, we are taking care of our, we should be taking care of our soldiers until they pass. Um, so in that respect, that continues. And that gets back to what we were talking about earlier of like, it is not only good for the soldiers, but it's good for VA and our budget to make sure that we're not breaking our soldiers. And, Absolutely. Right? So the, the, the enhancements shouldn't hopefully have a negative effect, but either way, we're on the hook for taking care of these, these folks anyways. So I'd like to pause for just a minute because we do have about 23 minutes left. I wanted to let everybody know, too, in the audience, if you have any other comments that you're thinking yourself, we do have two microphones available also, so you can raise your hand. And, of course, we've been passing around the cards. Um, and as you leave, just make sure you get your, your code scanned in if you didn't do that at the door at the entry. Okay, so we welcome you also to join the conversation uh, more fluidly, too. Um, so kind of can... Hello. So when you say, like, you keep talking about the youth and the youth to come, well, often life imitates art. So if you've ever read Old Man's War, you'd be familiar with the concept of using an older part of the populace to be future soldiers. So is there any applicability for using this technology to either extend our veteran soldiers that have all of those years of experience on the battlefield or bring in older, more mature individuals that can then perform those abilities at a more youthful rate. I actually like that idea. I mean, that's because they're a little bit you know, more seasoned already and they know what they've been through. They understand that they're not going in naive. So that's actually better. I, I think it's fantastic, I, and I, I would love to see that because um, that experience is invaluable, right? And as the psychologist sitting up here, um, and particularly, so my background, my formal background is clinical and developmental, so I like to say I, I, I know how people grow and also when it kind of goes awry. Um, and I have a lot of heart for our vets. Um, and particularly one of the things that I look at is who self-selects to be in the military. The people who want to either be in the military, whether, whether it's active duty or civilian, have, have a need for purpose. You know, as I try to explain sometimes to companies, it's, it's not profit-driven, we are mission-driven. And when you are a mission-driven human, and we teach you, train you, put you into operations, we make your life very, very purposeful, and then we bring you home and say, relax, for a very, very long time now. <laughs> it doesn't feel good to relax. You weren't wired to relax. You weren't trained to relax. You weren't taught that you were useful relaxed. You were taught that you were useful when you figured out, and I don't know how the Marines do it, that duct tape something together and still get it across. I, 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 Marines are my favorite because they figure everything out. <laughs> um, and, and I've often said, why are we not using this population? Because it's so valuable, not, not only to the services, but it's actually valuable to them as well. I think you would substantially reduce depression rates, anxiety rates. I mean, a lot of that is all, the, the root of it is all this purposefulness and this worth, this feeling of worth. Um, also, uh, I think there is a turn in the culture as well. So um, I'll out myself. I'm 47. I have just applied, as of Sunday, all my stuff is in, uh, to the Navy, act to, uh, to reserve duty. I had to get a lot of waivers <laughs> because of my age, because I'm way too old. 
But when they asked, why in the world would you want to do this? I said, if I've got something to add, put me in, coach. I said, I haven't done operations. I haven't done active duty because I was busy having children. You know, I had four children that kept me very busy for a very long time and used my body in ways that I couldn't serve. But I'm not in terrible shape. I'm, I don't understand why at 42 I, I expire, right? Um, and, and so the, the, it's been an interesting experience talking with the recruiters um, who are asking these questions. Well, why would you want to do this at this age? I, I think I still have a purpose. I think I have something I could bring to the table. No, I'm probably not very good at making coffee. I can almost guarantee you I'm terrible at it. However, I have the value of context. And uh, I understand. And I'm not bothered if you make me write a brief that you take credit for. It doesn't bother me in the least. I'm old enough. I don't have an ego in it, you know. <laughs> Um, and, and, but, it, but it has, it's, it's brought up some questions of like, do we have, a, the CIA I think just erased their age um, rules. Um, the other yeah. services are starting to change the rules. And if, and if we can use people regardless of their physical capabilities or we can enhance their capabilities, why can't we increase longevity of service? I mean, 20 years, we know every single person coming out, enlisted or officer, is going to have another career. We already know that and that's become part of the, the discussion point. Why can't we continue to use them? Why is it up and out? That's a great question. Uh, 100%. Do we have any other? I thought I saw somebody over here. That's okay. I'll continue with uh, these for a second, then that actually builds <clears throat> a little bit on this. You know, so it, it is somewhat like a, a societal divide, if you will, that occurs even, <clears throat> um, you know, right now, just with the military and civilian world. Uh, you know, transitioning from that that world, uh, you know, where there is that purpose and that uh, drive and that mission back into the normal world, if you, you know, if you will, um, is challenging, right? And it creates a separation. And also, a lot of times, employers are reluctant to hire uh, those in service, which is such a shame. Now, it seems weird in our space a lot of times, but there is a large percentage that is reluctant to hire those in service because they may come with baggage, but they also come with all this leadership and experience. So at the same time, getting to the super soldier idea is, you know, there's a couple of questions here related that if we have these enhancements, is that driving a greater divide between, um, you know, the military and the civilian world? Or is it bringing them closer? Probably divide. I mean, we can find anything to divide us nowadays. I think this would divide us, right? I mean, think about it. If you were, if you were up for, let's say you're in the civilian world and there's a, a veteran, a super soldier veteran, that is competing for the same job as you, and because of their enhancements, they are just more capable. They are, they are able to process information faster, whatever, 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 and they're chosen over you, and you think that was unfair, or you're in a sports situation, you know, you're playing sports, and you know your son runs the sub, whatever the, he holds the the, Mar the 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 Manhattan Loop record. Are people with natural hearts looking? Maybe they don't know, but they're like, well, that's not fair. I didn't have that advantage, right? So I think it, I absolutely think it'll divide us. That's not necessarily a bad thing or a reason not sure. to do it, but I think it's just reality. Yeah, from the soldier civilian side, yes, like once they become civilians, but. As soldiers themselves, like creating a super soldier, I think that helps because you know you can see it when you know um, at a ball game or something they you know ask the veterans to stand and it's just how you know and we thank everyone for their service. 
I think it brings us together in that regard. So, hey, we got better soldiers fighting for us. So I'm actually happy about that part. It might increase the patriotism. Yeah, the patriotism. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So, uh, you know, again, related to kind of this and the idea of dividing, though, then, uh, you know, if we think about <coughs> Iron Man, right? Yeah. Tony Stark is wealthy. You know, he's not, he's, he, you know, he, he's rich. Uh, we talk about, you know, the first um, non-astronauts, if you will, to, to kind of go to space that aren't in the scientific or engineering world, that didn't have some other reason, but that just went. They were rich. They were wealthy. Um, so does becoming a super soldier, uh, you know, lay in the hands then of only the wealthy? Or who would fund us? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, there's, there's, uh, when, when we've had discussions on ethics in the past, it's, it's access, right? You know, if you watch the movie Limitless, you know, he takes yes. a pill and he's <laughs> become, you know, he goes from being a, a, a broke loser <laughs> to being this, you know, rich, uh, highly successful man. And, you know, it's, <clears throat> yeah, what, how do you uh, level the playing field when you have technologies that are uh, enhancing one person over another? So it's, it's a great ethics question. I don't have the answers to it, but you know, <laughs> something, yeah, something we have to think about. Oh, they started fighting over that pill too. So yeah, yeah. That, was, that was a real big situation. Yeah, yeah. So I think the other, you know, big part of this too is. Um, <clears throat> so we talked a little bit earlier about blockers, right? Uh, you know, and and what is going to stop this from happening? Um, you know, what's the bureaucracy? <laughs> What we live in, right, is the bureaucracy. What is that going to be? What are these regulations going to be? Uh, I mean, what's acquisition going to look like for that when it already takes forever? Uh, when we just add more committees into the mix between S&T and acquisition, you know, uh, what do you think that's going to look like? Ugly. It's going to be real ugly. I mean, you talked about the Institutional Review Board earlier. Um, you know, it's definitely greater than minimal risk, which is like comes with all these extra rules and things. The uh, soldier's safe, but when you move it out of, let's say we're successful in S&T. Okay. Now you have an acquisition program. Okay. You know, typically we just, we field things, right? We, we give you, you are in this unit. This unit is going to be equipped with this new thing. Here it is, and here's the training. Go. Everybody gets it. Right? We've, we've started doing some selective fielding a little differently, but generally, if you're in a unit that's getting the capability, you are getting the capability. But when you're talking about making you know, some very personal changes, and like, I am changing you, I'm not handing you a thing, the fielding probably looks different for that. Maybe it's volunteer. I, I don't know how that works. Maybe it's something that's available to you, um, and you can self-select. Well, yes, I want that enhancement. I'm going to sign that I want that enhancement, and then you're fielded that enhancement. Perhaps, I mean, that's probably the lowest barrier of entry to start. I don't think you could impose this on people and say, hey, guess what? We're going to stick this needle in your eyeball, and you're going to have night vision without <laughs> batteries. Okay. Um, yeah, but I think if people elect to do it as soldiers, they want to be better in this way or have the chance to be better in this way, that's probably the easiest, fastest way to do it. But a standard fielding is, is further off than that. And as you saw when you asked them to raise their hands, only a few people did that. So. Yep. Who's going to who's going to step up for that position? We've got a question. Yes, question over here. You got a microphone. Uh, so with 
some of the older veterans that feel that they have been possibly let down or not necessarily supported as well in the healthcare aspects of what has happened in the past, if we were to create super soldiers of this content, what's the guarantee that the military will fulfill their end of the bargain to sustain their health and their bodily functions until they continue to go off that goes back to the cost-benefit analysis. If we get stuck in a tight situation, where do you think things would go? Yeah, well, I guess if for enhancement technologies, the, the, the hope would be that um, not only does it enhance, but it also uh, diminishes decline right, over time. So you know, maybe, uh, maybe the veterans would be the healthiest people around as opposed to uh, needing additional care. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of guaranteeing care, I mean, I think that's a, a political question that, you know, would be answered above my head. Yeah, add to that, um, like you said, hopefully they'll be able to get other jobs or something. I mean, they'll be enhanced, hopefully. That's, the, that's part of it, but still no guarantee. And then they're going to be taken care of after this political. I, th I think your question is spot on. It yeah. always has to be part of the question. I think, though, from the the scientists and and capability level, what we can tell you is what's possible. Yeah. What we can tell you is the barriers that we run into. Break, break. Yeah. Then you have care for veterans, politics generals and admirals, uh, you know, there is so much here and there is so much history that suggests we could do a better job, but it would be outside of the range of this space, right? There, these, are, these are bifurcated, even though they probably should be combined, um, but should is, is, is not always the way the DOD does business because of a variety of reasons, right? Which I'm guessing since you asked the question, you are well aware of all of these these um, silos that we all deal with. And so, it, I mean, I don't want to speak for the group, but, but it is generally the case um, within the, the scientist community for the military that we ask those kinds of questions because we do recognize, hey, this could have this impact, positive or negative. Does someone realize that we could do some improvements? Does someone realize that if we do these things, it could cause issues? Does someone realize that this thing that they've decided is a major issue actually isn't much of an issue and we're excluding people where we shouldn't? But those questions and that connection of communication does not happen as widely um, as we would like it to. Um, and so I think the best that all of us can do is have these conversations, right? It's just constantly so that someone in the audience knows some piece or knows someone where that information can, can be shared more and more. And I, I guess I feel like that's the ethical part that we can contribute to. Yeah, I mean, our, our job is to inform, right? S&T is going to inform right. senior leaders who then need to make decisions, yep. right? So there's been a, a, a several news articles recently going around about um, long-term exposure, exposure to our own blast from weapons, right? From firing a, a rocket launcher right next to your head or working artillery for a long period of time. And uh, OSD has a brain health initiative that's been running, Warfighter Brain Health, which has been running for a while. And they made recommendations, say like, this is your safe threshold, right? Do not exceed this safe threshold. And as far as I know, and what at least what the articles are reporting, nothing has changed in training. 
right? So, so somebody did their due diligence and said, this is where safety is, right? Above that, you're not safe. But to fire, uh, you know, a Carl Gustav right next to your head is double the safety threshold. Yep. So it's like, or, you know, SOCOM, I think, you know, they said, like, they're, you know, they're trying to reduce some things. And, um, but just because we find the answer, right, there's another step that has to happen to um, prevent things from happening that shouldn't be happening and then take care of those who have that, that happen. I recognize that's not just PTSD. It's a brain injury, right, and deal with it. Now, I will throw out one interesting caveat, which is that if we are doing a better job collecting data, because we have these enhancements, we might be able to inform yeah. healthcare in a better way as well. Um, and that is certainly something, I, I, did a, I did a tour of the US and I spent a month talking to a lot of um, various veterans groups. And um, one of the things that we found was a lot of, so a lot of people don't realize that each um, uh, veterans care for um, the, the hospitals and medical are different across the US. It's not, they're connected, but they actually operate quite differently. And so the ones that had a whole bunch of wearable devices that they used at home were showing substantially better outcomes. And it was really impressive to see how those units were, were um, being able to affect change. It was unfortunate that it was not necessarily being shared widely, um, but it, it was proof positive and they had very clear benefits um, both anecdotally, but as well as uh, measurement-wise, that we can improve. And so, some of the things that we're talking about would probably have a ripple effect of, of positive outcomes of informing healthcare de facto. <clears throat> okay. So, uh, last question for from the audience for the moment. Um, you know, we've talked a lot on the offensive side, or more generically, it appears from the offensive side, but. What would you, how would you differentiate some of the offensive versus defensive capabilities that a super soldier would have? Or would you differentiate? I, I guess, um, you know, defensive, I, I always think about, you know, you're reducing the effects of whatever stressors are being put on, put on the human by being in combat, right? So whether that be physical, mental, psychological, um, you know, those are the, the defensive applications. Um, I mean, offensive, it can be kind of nebulous. You know, if you're doing decision making, I think that that's, a, yes. that's an offensive capability, right? Um, you know, helping people um, make more effective and quicker decisions is definitely something that I think will be pivotal in winning more. Both sides. And turn offense, or turn defense into offense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Fantastic. So with the last five minutes, I have a, I have a question for the panelists. <laughs> if you were a super soldier, what capabilities would you have and why? I'll give you a moment to think. Everybody wants to fly. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Say everybody wants to fly. <laughs> See, I want to be limitless. Fly, you know, see things, see through walls, all the technology. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to be able to control things with just thought. Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I look at decision making as a superpower. The ability to uh, <clears throat> take in the relevant information very quickly and make a good, quick decision can be the difference between life or death in that kind of situation. It'd be nice to be able to do all the other things too, yeah. um, but you know that is one I think that's attainable in the nearer term. 
some even targeted training and, and you know techniques and stuff like that. I'm beginning to think we should test our personalities by <laughs> what we've chosen. Um, Blue lollipop. <laughs> I would like to be invisible, so I would love to be able to cloak, be able to go anywhere and see, digest information. I pick multiplicity. Right? Okay. So you can multiply and be in multiple places at once and optimize your time. Well, that might mean you're too busy in real life. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right, Jennifer. I think we need. Uh, Who are you in your dreams? Where's Myers Briggs? I think we need our personality test. Well, again, we're back to uh, come full circle when someone says, "How do you how do you recruit?" And, and my immediate thought in response to that question was atypically, not the way that we are currently, right? And I always go back to that scene in, um, what is the name of the movie where uh, they were doing the, the first computer to be able to, um, uh, anyway, they, they selected by crossword puzzle. They sent out a crossword puzzle across the US to see who could do it in you know, so many minutes. Uh, and what they, of course, were trying to do was look at other specific skill sets uh, that were not typically tested in the way that we do assessment today. So maybe we need to add a new one. What is your superpower going to be? <laughs> so we'll know what we'll know what category you fit into. Well, it is time, uh, but we hope that the conversation and the discussion doesn't stop here. Uh, it is only Monday on at six, so. Uh, we hope that this continues into the happy hours and social networking events that are occurring th even this evening as well as through the showroom floor. It is open, so be sure to visit all the exhibitors um, and uh, our panelists will stick around for a little bit, I hope, to uh, answer any questions directly and welcome introductions also. So please continue this conversation and we hope that we have a super soldier of the future. This is awesome. Thank you, Thank you guys.